0: Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.29, The Aftermath of the Boston Rebellion. Welcome back. This week, we reached the penultimate episode of both our Dominion of New England story arc, but also on our narrative for the season as well. For today, we are going to focus on the short-term effects of the overthrow. The long-term aspects will be a topic for next season when we explore the relationship between King William and Queen Mary and our North American colonies. So if you are curious about the long-term ramifications of the Glorious Revolution on the English North American colonies, don't fret, we are going to be covering that at the beginning of next season. In our next episode, we are going to wrap the story up with a look on the rebellion in New York that is going to be led by Jacob Leisler, plus a few closing thoughts on the Dominion of New England. From there, we will move into our review episodes and wrap up our second season. Okay, well, with that, let's jump right on in. Following what was the rapid collapse of the Dominion government of Massachusetts, the decision quickly had to be made of what exactly were they going to do next. For the members of the faction, they really wanted to go back and get moving again right from where they left off in May of 1686. However, as we discussed last week and we will continue to talk about into the future, Despite trying to revert to that point, things really had changed. The old faction was never going to command the Puritan hegemony over the colony. The moderates had been a big part of the overthrow of Andros, and everybody quickly realized, though they would have gladly denied it at the time, that the moderates were going to have a place in the government moving forward. This is made evident by the fact that in the period of time following the rebellion, you fail to see anybody step to the forefront of colonial politics. Recall that during the early years in Massachusetts, it was men like Winthrop that controlled the political conversation and the direction of the colony. Following the overthrow of the Dominion, however, we failed to see anybody like that really come take the reins of power. If Andros had forced former rivals into alliance with each other by nearly universally isolating all groups within Massachusetts, it meant that the downfall of Andros was going to remove that thread that bound them together and reopen all those old tensions that existed between them. The difference being now, as opposed to the situation in 1686, is that the moderates could no longer simply be pushed aside by the Puritan faction. The first course of business after the rebellion was having the leadership create some kind of government. What they decided on was a council of safety that would run the immediate government while something more stable was put into place. The decision was also made that the former government would be continued, as though it had simply taken a very long recess. Interestingly enough, however, the charter itself was not voted to be reinstated. There are a couple of possible reasons for this. First and foremost, the original charter had been undone by royal decree, even if that particular king who had signed said decree was now hanging out in France while his successor sat on the throne. Second, this may well speak to those tensions between the faction and the moderates. The moderates had no interest in returning to a true status quo antebellum from before the dominion. Shortly after the decision to resume the former government, a new election was held. Though the faction would ultimately end up winning a majority in the election, somewhat tempering the complaints of the moderates for the moment. Practically speaking, the moderates did win enough seats that they now had a real voice in government, something that was not true before 1686. What ultimately emerges in Massachusetts for the time being is an uneasy alliance between the two old rivals. Bitter inviting would emerge during those post-dominion years, while the colonists awaited something more official from the king. It is worth noting that as all of this is going on, the overthrow of Andros, the re-establishment of the old government, all of it, the colonists aren't actually aware of what had happened back in England. For all they knew, James II had managed to survive, and William's head was on a pike atop the Tower of London. It isn't until the end of May 1689 that it is confirmed for the colonists that William is indeed their new king and that James II had been officially ousted. There would remain an uneasiness in Massachusetts that is going to last for years to come until King William established something more permanent. Everybody was well aware that the government of May 1689 was nothing more than a temporary measure. The truth, however, remains that New England is more than just Massachusetts. For the rest of New England, the rug had very much been pulled out from under them. They, of course, were no huge fans of Andros. However, suddenly the governments that they had known were just gone. This left a sudden and frantic need throughout New England for the colonies to decide what they were going to do next and figure out a path forward. Perhaps none of the colonies existed in a more tenuous position as the Plymouth Colony. Plymouth has always been unique in New England, in that it was operating without a formal charter. If you'll recall from way back in episode 1.15, the Pilgrims had initially meant to land further to the south, near the mouth of the Hudson. However, as we know, things did not really end up working out and they ended up landing in what is now the southern part of Massachusetts. The Dominion of New England, though certainly not popular, did at least give an air of legitimacy to Plymouth. If the hope was that now King William III would come restore the colonial charters, for Plymouth they had nothing to restore, they had never had a charter. Despite the confused situation surrounding the status of Plymouth, they were not going to be left behind in helping out with the collapse of the Dominion. The Plymouth colonists did quickly run out and arrest Nathaniel Clark, a member of the Andros Assembly and somebody who was close with the governor personally. Beyond that, however, there really was not much in the way of action throughout Plymouth. The colonists in Plymouth were, as in Massachusetts, deeply concerned with the threat of encroaching Catholicism. Andros, being an agent of the Catholic King James II, was a pathway for that influence to come into the colony. Thus, when Andros suddenly found himself in custody, very few tears were shed throughout Plymouth. With the Dominion government now gone… The colonists quickly returned their government to where it had been right before the Dominion of New England had taken control in the first place. The colonists worked hard to draw their connection to William and show that they were actually a whole lot like him. They wasted no time in reminding the king that their original reason for coming to Plymouth was religious liberty. And of course, when we are talking about religious liberty in the aspect of the Plymouth settlers, we are talking about them practicing their own particular brand of Puritanism. But hey, William III had, in theory, invaded England for religious reasons, which, okay, that's close enough for right now. At the same time, however, the Plymouth colonists decided to hedge their bets with the new king. In April of 1689, there really was no telling what the king's thoughts were going to be on just what went down in Massachusetts. Wanting to tread carefully, they made sure to make clear that they were not involved in any way in the events that took place in Massachusetts. The fact that there was no charter was something that Plymouth colonists were clearly concerned about. In their initial address to William and Mary, sent in early June of 1689, they absolutely hinted at the fact that, hey, a royal charter really would be wonderful, King. If you want to send us one, we'd sure appreciate it. While the colonists did understand that the road to a colonial charter was going to be rough, the colony did quickly resume their former government. The governorship was returned to Thomas Hinkley, and for at least the time being, it was business as usual, or at least how it had been prior to the dominion. Connecticut, from its founding, was always the colony that fell most in lockstep with Massachusetts. In so many ways, the two colonies shared a lot of similarities. Both colonies tended towards a form of Puritanism that sought to reform the existing church structures, unlike the separatists over in Plymouth. Likewise, as was the case with both Massachusetts and Plymouth, they absolutely hated everything that was going on over in Rhode Island. If Massachusetts was the first colony in New England, surely Connecticut was the second colony. However, despite this, we don't see Connecticut resist the Dominion nearly as much as we see in Massachusetts, and particularly in Boston. Within Connecticut, the man who emerged as the leader following the collapse of the Dominion was John Finch. Though I did not name him at the time, Finch did previously make an appearance in episode 2.26, as he was one of the leading figures of resistance during the earliest days of the Dominion. With Andros now gone, Finch hurriedly called for a new election to be held. The problem internally is that Connecticut was far from a unified colony. Three groups immediately came to the forefront. First, you had the popular party which was run by John Finch. In the other corner, you had the moderates, who were run by former governor Robert Treat. Prior to Connecticut joining the Dominion, it had been the moderates who had controlled the politics in the colony. Sensing this as an opening, though, and having led the fight against Dominion inclusion years before, Finch saw this as his chance to get control over the colony. The final group that stepped in was led by Grisham Bolkley. Bulkley did not believe that Connecticut had the right to hold elections at all. His view was that since the colonial charter was no more, the colony failed to form any kind of a body politic. No body politic means that there was nobody to vote, and hence there were no elections. Volkley believed that the Dominion government should continue under Andros, until different orders came directly from the king as to what they were supposed to do. Volkley would, therefore, emerge as one of the most staunch Andros supporters not to find himself in prison following the fall of the Dominion. When the elections did come during the middle of May 1689. There were three potential outcomes. The voters could decide to continue on with the Dominion government until further notice. They could return to the pre-Dominion days and elect former moderates such as Robert Treat. Or they could choose to go with Finch and try something new altogether. The colonists, desperate to get things back to the way they were, voted the route of re-electing the former governor. Finch was simply far too progressive for the moment despite the widespread support that he had had when it came to wanting to resist the Dominion in the first place. Likewise, with only a few exceptions, everybody was thrilled to see the Dominion gone, and nobody wanted to support something that they all hated from the very depths of their souls. Robert Treat was back as governor, and as it was in Massachusetts and Plymouth, it went back to business as usual. For his part, Bulkeley was absolutely furious, and saw this entire process reeking of democracy and subverting the power of the king. Now, back in power, the moderates realized the importance of restoring the old charter. This was more than just lip service as well. The charter laid out the parameters for the government of Connecticut. The charter therefore acted as a check on power of men like Finch and Boakley from coming in and changing what the moderates viewed as the very systems and structures of that government. The moderates were therefore anxious to return the Charter to power, and to resecure their power over the operations of government and control over just who could come into that very government. If there is any colony that Andros and the Dominion might find some favor in, it was always going to be Rhode Island. The Quakers may not have been huge fans of the Dominion, mind you. However, the Society of Friends was absolutely no friends of the Puritans they remembered the persecution of Mary Dyer and the other Boston martyrs. Maybe they didn't like Andros or the Dominion government, however, they hated the Puritans even more. No tears, therefore, were shed in Rhode Island at seeing the destruction of Puritan hegemony throughout New England years before. Pragmatically, however, the Dominion was falling apart and something needed to be done. It took about five days for news of the events in Boston to reach Rhode Island. Rather, however, than simply going back to the old system, Walter Clark, the former governor of the colony right before the Dominion, suggested that everybody should come together on May 1st. May 1st had previously been the election day in the colony, before the Dominion, and once again it would be the date where the colonists decided just what they wanted to do following the events that had taken place in Massachusetts. A large number of colonists did in fact make the meeting in Newport. The first move was to swear their allegiance to England. Recall that in early May, nobody had a clue as to if the Glorious Revolution had actually been successful. So it was probably a good idea to cover their bases and remind the world that they were not leading some kind of revolution to separate from the crown. Likewise, the Rhode Island colonists took the approach of pointing out that the Dominion government had collapsed, something they had nothing to do with, which meant that Rhode Island was without legitimate government. Well, not necessarily endorsing the events in Boston the Rhode Island colonists stated that they did need some form of government, something that would, at a minimum, suffice while everybody tried to figure out what was actually going on. This isn't to say, however, that nobody in Rhode Island was pro-Dominion. It is worth noting that former Dominion Governor Joseph Dudley was arrested in Rhode Island and sent back to Boston. What makes the response different in Rhode Island, however, is that their overall response was muted compared to the other colonies. Yes, they did elect a temporary government. However, they failed to put anything in place that they expected to last. Really, they just put in an assembly to handle the day-to-day tasks of government. Rhode Island had refused to restore their governor to power and would remain without a governor for the next year. The colony would move forward operating under a minimalist posture while they waited for William III to make his decision as to their future. While they would eventually re-establish the office of the governor, Rhode Island would remain cautious in their actions and how they dealt with the collapse of the Dominion. We are going to spend the second half of today's episode discussing what happened to Edmund Andros following his capture in Boston. Andros, who has been a player in our story since his time in New York, found himself in a very tight place. Edmund Andros was never himself a tyrant. Recall that in New York, he had actually supported there being an elected assembly. The bigger problem for Andros is that he was always a company man. His personal feelings did not matter. He did the job that he was instructed to do. At no point was Andros the kind of guy who was going to fly against the grain and do anything outside of what his royal commands were. It can be, and has been argued therefore, that the complaints of the colonists against the Dominion were actually grievances against the government of England itself. This was not lost on the contemporaries of the events either, as Increase Mather made his comments that Andros was merely the focal point of anger over English colonial policy. However, regardless of the views towards Andros, the fact is, the guy was now in the custody of a very angry Massachusetts. Initially, Andros was taken to the house of John Usher for his first night on April 18th. However, quickly it became clear that the location was far from secure enough, Not only were they worried about keeping Andros in, but they needed to keep the rabble from getting in themselves and dispensing with mob justice. The next day, Andros was moved to Fort Mary. It is worth mentioning that many of the others who have been staunch advocates of Andros, such as Randolph, would end up being held in the Boston City Jail. Andros, not interested in rotting away in jail, did attempt to get some help from New York, where Francis Nicholson, his lieutenant governor, still had control over the colony. However, as we will see next week, when I say that Nicholson had control, we are talking about nominal control at best. Well, I'm sure he probably wanted to give Andros a hand, Nicholson was busy dealing with his own rebellion led by Jacob Leisler and was doing his best not to end up like Edmund Andros. Andros did manage a more direct letter on May 18th, ordering Nicholson to send two representatives from the Dominion to help him. Nicholson did ask two such representatives to make the trip. However, you don't need to worry about their names because they pretty much just laughed at the request. Nobody with ties to the Dominion government nor Edmund Andros was terribly anxious to waltz into Boston in May of 1689. With no help coming from New York, Andros was stuck. Initially, at least, however, conditions were not that bad. Being guarded by the seemingly sympathetic John Nelson, Andros was treated well. In fact, he was treated so well that the Puritans worried about the loyalties of Nelson and decided that he probably was not the right guy for the job. Once replaced, that new guard over Andros was far less kind. Andros was a prisoner and the Puritans were wanting to make that very clear to everybody involved. In an instant, Andros saw his correspondence and access to outside visitors severely curtailed. Something that must have come as quite a shock to him. Conditions were so harsh that reports came out in June that Andros had tried to escape wearing women's clothing. While the evidence of this escape is thin, and the part about him wearing women's clothing was likely the rumor mill just doing its thing, the fact is that shortly thereafter, Andros was moved to a more secure prison on Castle Island. While being held in the far more harsh and restrictive confines of Castle Island, Andros, along with Dudley and Randolph, were informed that they were being charged with numerous capital crimes in Massachusetts. A likely unwelcome, though unsurprising, development to the men. Andros was held in a basement room of the fort, one that was constantly leaking and cold. Conditions were miserable. There was not enough food, and Andros was looking at a possible death sentence, so it really was not a great time for him. With very little left to lose, Andros decided to take his chances, and on August 2nd, 1689, actually did manage to escape. For Andros, getting out of the fort was really just the first problem, considering that he was, by now, the single most hated man in the region. Virtually all of New England knew who he was and was looking for blood. In New York, Jacob Leisler was now in control of the colony. Leisler was not a friend of Andros, going back to his time in New York, and probably would have been thrilled to hand Andros over to the authorities. Or, alternatively, hold on to him and kill him right there in New York. So, now Andros was having to ask the question, Where in a region where everybody hates me can I escape? The answer lie in Rhode Island and the Quakers. Sure, they may not have been huge supporters of his, but the Quakers hated the Puritans and, well, at least that was a start. If nothing else, they would be less likely to want to hand Andros back to the Puritans in New England, which, hey, that's something in this case. However, unfortunately for Edmund Andros, he did not make it to the Quakers. He was captured by non-Quakers in Rhode Island, held under armed guard while the entire incident was reported back to Massachusetts. Andros was quickly moved out of Rhode Island and was placed in the custody of John Wally. Wally was at least an interesting choice to guard Andros. A former member of the Dominion Council, Wally seemed to lack the vitriolic hate towards Andros that was so in vogue during the summer of 1689. Andros was returned to the fort on Castle Island, where this time he was held in near solitary confinement. Meanwhile in England, that King was forced to deal with what should happen to his now-imprisoned governor. William III could not fully denounce the actions of the New Englanders, as their overthrow of Andros so closely mirrored his overthrow of James II. Not wanting to alienate the colonists was absolutely a huge consideration. At the same time, however, he was not terribly anxious to see Andros swinging from the gallows or his head on a spike. Popular opinion back in England ebbed and flowed. At first, there was a lot of support for the actions of the New Englanders. However, as stories of Andros's captivity rolled in, that support quickly faded and turned into contempt for those colonists. Suddenly, the New Englanders had gone from loyal rebels to dangerous rabble. William III decided to act and write a letter to Bradstreet on July 30th, 1689, that he wanted Andros treated well and, more importantly, placed immediately on a ship back to England. Now, to fit this all into a timeline for you, the capital crime accusations against Andros came down in July. However, his escape from Castle Island came just a few days after the king wrote to Bradstreet. Either way, upon receipt of the letter, it suddenly became much more difficult to justify putting Edmund Andros on trial and likely executing him. The entire justification for the rebellion is that they had been acting for King William III. To defy his orders now would have undermined their entire position, but this whole thing had been in support of their new king. If New Englanders hoped to avoid retribution for the overthrow of the Dominion, sentencing Edmund Andros to death and carrying out the execution was not the way to do it. However, the colonists also realized that Andros really was their best leverage right now. We know that the letter that William III had sent reached Bradstreet on November 24th. It was critical for the New Englanders to have their case against Andros be as rock-solid as possible. After all, what they were defending is that Andros was a tyrant acting under the auspices of James II. If they failed to prove that, then the entire justification for their overthrow of the Dominion begins to look a whole lot less legitimate. Rather, therefore, than a quick return, Andros was held for another two months before being sent to England in February of 1690. What would follow was the trial of Edmund Andros. Now, we're going to talk more about the subject of the trial itself next season, as it provides some good clues for the long-term repercussions of the Glorious Revolution in the colonial United States. However, for our story today, know that Andros was ultimately acquitted. The king made his ruling on April 24th, 1690. The acquittal was, based on the fact that the agents of Massachusetts failed to sign the charges against Andros. When asked why they had failed to sign the charges, the answer was that the rebellion was brought by the people of New England, rather than by a single individual. Well, this sounds super high-minded and like something straight out of the Enlightenment, the real reason for this answer was likely pragmatic rather than philosophical. Should the New Englanders lose the case against Andros, which they probably all believed that they would, The agents did not want to accept the liability to Andros for his imprisonment over that period of 10 months, nor the often deplorable conditions that they kept him in. The failure to sign the charging instrument also provided the king and his counselors with an easy out as well. Well, nobody really wanted to convict Andros. The hypocrisy of decrying the New Englanders for their actions was lost on absolutely no one. These men had done the very same thing just a year earlier when they had overthrown James II and certainly knew that they were not standing on either the moral nor the legal high ground. Nobody wanted to come out and announce or even imply that the Glorious Revolution had been illegal. The failure to sign the charging instrument, however, meant that the court could go ahead and dismiss the charges against Andros, not on the basis of actual guilt or innocence, but rather on a totally non-committal technicality. With their backs against the wall, however, this came off as a pretty good solution, and one that they would be wise to take. Edmund Andros, you would think at this point, would be done in our story. However, that's not true just yet. He is going to be returning next season for a third act in colonial North America, though I promise it will be much less dramatic than his last few years. We are likewise going to be returning next season for some more details into the trial of Edmund Andros during the spring of 1690. The trial of Andros would be critical for helping establish the role of the colonies in the English domain. Next time. We are going to head south to New York and spend our time looking at the events that developed there. As I alluded to today, Jacob Leisler is about to turn New York upside down as he would rebel against the Dominion authorities. That episode will bring our story arc on the Dominion of New England to a close, as well as our narrative for the second season. With that, I hope you are all staying healthy and staying safe, and I would be remiss if I did not also add staying warm. As you may or may not be aware, this show is based out of Texas, and it has been a very, very rough week out here. I have personally been pretty lucky here, and we have not lost power or anything like that. However, that is unfortunately not the case for many other people, including what I would assume to be many regular listeners of this show. So, for everybody out there, please try to stay warm this week and take care of yourself, and I will be back here in two weeks' time, and we will look to see exactly what got Jacob Leisler so angry.